aren't you just a sight for sore eyes? Of all the movie and TV joints in all the towns and all the world, you walked into mine. How lovely. Come, sit. Let me pour you a drink before we begin the showing. You know, I think that this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Cheers. Here's looking at you, Phil. Well, hello there. How are we? Welcome back to Here's Looking at You Film, a podcast for the vintage cinephile with modern sensibilities. I'm your host, Nikki, and you may have noticed that full intro that played there. Um, I actually got an email from a fellow podcaster, Kurt from Core Extra. Now, this is my kind of pod because I live solo, but it's not necessarily a a podcast just for people who live solo. If you like podcasts that feel like a fun FaceTime call with friends, um, that's what feels good to me. So if that feels good to you, you might like this pod as well. Um, They talk about really random subjects from sports, TV shows, family, different things that are going on, um, but in a very focused way that you can follow. And they do, you know how um, you could do like a 5K run? Well, they do uh, like these 5K podcast reviews uh, where they listen to a bunch of episodes of one podcast and give you an overall review. It's really amazing. Anyhow, Kurt emailed me and said the following. Hello, I just wanted to tell you your original intro is so good it needs to be a part of the podcast. Of course, this is just my opinion. I would take some time and play with fading it in and out, talking over the music parts, etc. Again, I'm just giving you my two cents as the fan of the show. Looking forward to more episodes. Kurt, producer and co-host of the Core Extra podcast. Now, I really appreciate the feedback. I think that's the first bit of feedback that's been emailed to me. Um, And so I'm going to try it out. I'm going to put my intro back at the beginning of a couple of episodes. If anybody feels like, oh, maybe you could tweak the intro a little bit, change it up a little bit, um, you can also email me or message me and let me know. You know all my deets will be in the show notes as well as at the bottom of the episode. But we have to get started with talking um, about our movie. I really appreciate the feedback. I thought that I would shorten the podcast, but I guess um, what's another 45 seconds when the podcast is already an hour? Now, if you guys don't follow me on Twitter, you may not know this week was a bit of a toss-up. I still hadn't picked a movie on Saturday, so I put it to a Twitter poll um, between three movies and a show. After what seemed like the scariest time for the longest time, so many hours, one movie edged out by one vote and whoever that last vote was i owe you a coffee i promise you but that one vote was for coming to america so it's an 80s week Brown premiered, just as a fun fact, but out of the Murphy brothers, uh, Eddie was the only Murphy that was a household name, but shout out to the late, great Charlie Murphy. Now, Coming to America is a 1988 American romantic comedy that was directed by John Landis and was based on a story that Eddie Murphy created. Now, the film was released in uh, on June 29th. 
1988, and Eddie Murphy and John Landis had previously worked together on Trading Places back in, I believe, 1983. Now, Landis, when he talks about working on Coming to America, he talks about the differences in working with uh, Eddie on the two movies. Now, he says, the guy on Trading Places was young, full of energy, curious, funny, fresh, great, and the guy on Coming to America was the pig of the world. But I still think he's wonderful in the movie. Now, basically what happened was John had worked with Eddie when he was still fresh, young, impressionable back in 1983. But by 1988, Eddie Murphy was Eddie Murphy. You know what I mean? And he personally hired John Landis for this movie that he could have directed himself. So when Landis came in, starts treating him like the same young guy that he was back in the day... They bumped heads, for sure. Now, Coming to America is special to me for many reasons, but it also makes me a little bitter for some reasons I'll go into after the movie. Now, my, however, my love for the movie stems from college. Now, I went to an HBCU, FAMU, shout out to FAMU. Um, I hung with a crew of folks that could literally quote whole movies off the top of their head. And this movie was right at the top, right? And it almost felt like a sing-along rewatching the movie now. Because even though the movie isn't a musical at all, there's so many classic music moments in the film that it kind of feels like a musical. Now, I'm only going to have a little bit of analysis on the end because, you know, for the most part, the movie is what it is. But the plot is going to take some time. So let's get into our mains on the list. Now, this is a cast list that I have to run because there's some iconic names here. So Eddie Murphy plays four different characters. Um, Arsenio Hall plays four different characters. James Earl Jones plays King Joffrey Jofer. John Amos is Cleo McDowell. Um, Madge Sinclair is Queen Aeolian Joffer. Sherry Headley's Lisa McDowell. Eric LaSalle is Derek Jenks. Frankie Faison is the landlord. Vanessa Bell is Amani Izzy. Louis Anderson is a Maurice who works at McDowell's. Um, Sam Jackson is the holdup man. Calvin Lockhart is Colonel Izzy. There's so many. Gar um, Garcelle Beauvais, who um, has been in a bunch of stuff, and we'll talk about her in a minute. She's in this movie. So there's some iconic names, especially like for black people. There's some iconic names in this film that we just would be remiss if we didn't name. Okay, so now that we have our players, let's press play. So we open up to Mbube by Ladysmith Black Mombazo playing over the sweeping stars and the mountain of the Paramount logo, classic logo. Now, you may know this song as the backing vocals of a song that goes by another name, The Lion Sleeps Tonight. That's the song that's playing. The film opens to a sweeping camera shot of the lush greenery and landscape of Zamunda, our fictional kingdom. Now, I haven't really seen anything consistent about what African country Zamunda is based on, like physically and the way it looks. But honestly, this is a late 80s Eddie Murphy film, so I doubt that they were worried about like accuracy or offending anybody. 
However, I have seen some articles comparing the clothing to that of Libyan royalty. And some of the text that was in the sequel that came out um, recently, I think it was like 2014 or something like 2018 maybe, um, that was Ethiopian text. But we will of course not be covering the sequel because it is not in our movie timeline. However, the name Zamunda comes from in this old Richard Pryor routine where he basically makes up a name for an African tribe and Eddie Murphy loved him some Richard Pryor. Now, in a few months, we're actually going to talk about the movie that they did together, which is literally number four on my top 10 Black classics. Anyway, back to our film. Now, this palace is decadent. Before there was Wakanda, there was Zamunda. We know the stereotype of the poor African nation still prevails to this day. And never was it stronger than in the 80s at the beginnings of the AIDS crisis. And the donate 10 cents a day commercials with like Suzanne Summers. Coming to America was a chance to see the richness and beauty of Africa, in a sense, right? So in now we're back to the movie. Oha, the royal assistant, comes strutting down this corridor. At 8.59, he gets himself, as well as the string and brass ensemble, in position. And at exactly 9 a.m., Oha directs the ensemble to begin a soft aria to awaken his royal highness, Prince Akim. Three fine-ass rose bearers wait to throw roses at his feet. One of those rose bearers is Garcelle Bovet. Now, some of y'all might know her as Fancy from the Jamie Foxx show, but some of y'all might actually just know her from the Real Housewives, because I think she's on Real Housewives of Hollywood now, depending on your crowd. But Prince Akeem awakens very peacefully to beautiful music and is greeted separately by each of his rose bearers with Good morning, your highness. And it's his birthday. He's escorted to the next room for his morning duke. I don't know what else you'd call it, his morning poop. So when he suggests that maybe since this is his 21st birthday, he can use the restroom by himself, Ohad responds very dryly with, very amusing, sir, and calls for the wipers to approach. He also doesn't bathe alone. He's assisted by... Beautiful women, naked aside from beautiful headpieces and jewelry. He just stares blankly off into space while one woman pats him with a sponge on his shoulders and another woman simply stands in front of him. A woman emerges from underneath the water and says, The royal penis is clean, your highness. Which, I don't know if y'all, I think it was the Chicken and Beer album by Ludacris. I know that Nas samples it as well, too. Um, but uh, Ludacris has this song. He goes, at the beginning of it, it goes, The royal penis is clean, your highness. Thank you, king shit. Yeah, motherfucker. I, I still, every time I hear it, I think of that song. Anyway. Um, so anyway, the royal penis cl- is clean, your highness. And Prince Akeem, he just sighs wistfully. Um, he has a different servant for brushing his teeth, wiping his mouth, and even one that moves his throat around, like by hand to gargle for him, he does not have to do anything by himself. He is practically a pet at this point. After picking out his clothing, he heads out to attend breakfast with his parents, King Joffrey Jofer and Queen Aeolian, played by James Earl Jones and Madge Sinclair, respectively. And one of my favorite fun facts ever out of any movie 
is that James Earl Jones and Madge Sinclair actually did five movies together. And in one movie, they also played royal partners. Which other movie was that? A pair of lions named Mufasa and Nairobi. Yes, Prince Akeem's parents were also Simba's parents in The Lion King. Isn't that dope? I think that is so dope. Anyway, Prince Akeem and his parents sit at either end of the longest dining table ever. But somehow, his parents notice from like a mile away how sad he looks. So they ask him over this radio system, because they're sitting so far away, if he's okay. And at first, he says he's fine. But the king assures him that he's a concerned dad just as much as he's a king which is very sweet. Anyway, the prince decides to head down to the other end of the table for a heart-to-heart with his parents, but he's not even allowed to advance unless the rose bearers are throwing petals quickly at his feet. Now, as they begin talking, King Joffrey is surprised to see that the king has, uh, that the prince has grown a mustache, but they haven't seen him for the past year, so they wouldn't have known anyway. Now, If you've ever seen Beverly Hills Cop, you may remember that the woman at the art gallery was also surprised to see that Axel had grown a mustache, and that was Eddie Murphy in Beverly Hills Cop, so that's fun. Anyway, after some conversation about Prince Akeem's lack of freedom to do anything for himself, including walk without rose bearers, he finally gets to the crux of the issue. Why can't he find his own wife? They have found a wife for him to marry already. And But his parents assure him that his wife-to-be has been trained to think and act like a queen, his queen since birth. However, Prince Akeem is worried that he's not going to love her. Now, the queen and king assure him that when they met, they were frightened and almost sick to their stomachs. But as King Joffrey Jofer puts it, there's a fine line between love and nausea. But the prince wants a woman who loves him for who he is, not what he is. Now, real quick, I always get like kind of like, okay, watching this because for all intents and purposes, there's nothing in this film to suggest that anyone around the prince, anything around the prince would even understand the concept of like love or empathy in that way like I'm sure that they understand it like in a very basic way but like I don't think anybody would necessarily teach him that and he seems very sheltered so I don't understand why he would have all this empathy and be so sensitive but you know I know it's a movie but I know this was also back in Eddie's heyday when he was like growing into his like sex symbol phase. And so he was just trying to do movies that made him more sexy and made women be like, oh my God, I get it. But it's still kind of like a weird concept. Anyway, as they're talking, Prince Akeem's homeboy, Semi, who's played by Arsenio Hall, shows up to take him to his daily workout. Now, it's clear that the king and the queen aren't really a fan of Semi necessarily, but that's like their son's bestie, so they put up with him. So now they have a little, like, talk workout fight, and they fight with sticks. I don't know what you call the kind of fighting they do, but Semi doesn't understand how the prince could literally have an obedient wife with a, quote, pretty face, a firm backside, and breasts like cassava melons, but would rather have someone with an opinion. But the prince believes that obedience is for dogs, and a wife is a partner. While Semi's view is tradition, Akeem believes that traditions evolve and change, which they do. 
So everyone is turning up for the royal engagement that night, and it is beautiful, colorful, black excellence. Everyone is in their Zamunda best, and Eddie looks fine in his, like, suit with his hat and his... Yes. Anyway, as the festivities begin, Colonel Izzy approaches to offer his daughter for marriage. The king approves and announces the commencement of courtship. Now, this very shapely woman pushes her way through the crowd and approaches the front, causing this wide-eyed response from the prince, as surely they wouldn't have picked this big-ass woman to be his bride, because this was a time when it was widely accepted for like being fat to just be the whole joke in movies, TV shows, all that shit. I mean, this was 1988, so that's fine. At the time, it was fine. It's not like Eddie Murphy went on to write, direct, and star in a whole movie in 2007 where being fat and black and a woman was the whole joke, her being named Rasputia. So obviously, this was just of 1988. This wasn't something that was in like Eddie Murphy's repertoire and would continue on for a long time during his career. But I digress. I don't know if y'all realize it, but I have a sore spot with Eddie. But this is still a good movie, so we'll move on. Luckily for our prince, she's only there to announce Miss Imani Izzy, his unknown bride. So this starts one of the most iconic dance sequences seen in a Black movie ever. Even more iconic than the hip-hop genius of Julia Stiles in Save the Last Dance. These fit black bodies wearing gorgeous headdresses and like beautiful but minimal clothing. They do this elaborate dance number that I have seen so many times, okay? I'm about to ruin it for you, okay? Now, most of the dance, if you actually watch it, is just a high-speed, high-energy, Africanized version of the dance from Thriller from Michael Jackson. If you get a chance, just go back and just watch it. You can look up on YouTube. I'll put in the show notes the dance from, um, I'll put Thriller and I'll put the dance from um, Coming to America in it. And you'll probably see, it, it, it might make you chuckle. <laughs> anyway, after the dance number ends, we get our queen-to-be Imani Izzy. High ponytail, gold, high-collar dress. Fine ass, Vanessa Bell Calloway. Uh, okay, so now I have to sing the song. I'm sorry, but I'm going to back up from the mic so I don't scream it in your ear, but I have to sing this song because it's a classic. I'm sorry. Okay, here we go. She's your queen to be. A queen to be forever, a queen who do whatever his highness desires. She's your queen to be, a vision of perfection, an object of affection to quench your royal fire. 
completely free from infection to be used at your discretion waiting only for your direction your queen to be thank you so much i'll be here all week <laughs> well anyway so prince akeem feels kind of awkward because he wants to talk to her first, which is kind of unprecedented. Everybody looks shocked. So he takes her over to a room because he wants to get to know her. Okay, so what do you like? Whatever you like. Okay, what kind of music do you like? Whatever music you like. No, 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 look, girl, I know what I like, but okay, girl, you got a favorite food? Yes. Cool. What is it? Whatever food you like. So he's like, Okay, I forbid you to obey me. She's like, no. So he says, you'll do whatever I want? Yes, your highness. So the king comes in a few seconds later. Sis is hopping on one foot making orangutan noises. Like she was barking like a dog. King thinks it's great. It is not. The king has never left Zamunda. He wants to see what the world has to offer. But King Jaffe just kind of thinks he needs to just get out, sow his royal oats, but the wedding is still going to commence in 40 days as planned. Now, while Semi thinks this is going to be 40 days of pure fornication, Prince Akeem intends to find his actual bride, someone who's going to stimulate his mind and his loins. So they flip a coin to decide between L.A. and New York, obviously the only two cities in the uh, United States, um, and they come up heads for New York. Now, where are they going to go in New York? Well, where else would you find a royal bride but in Queens? So off they fly. The prince tells Simi that they need to blend in as much as possible while they're being accompanied by six dudes carrying really nice-ass luggage. Akeem steps in front of a cab outside the airport and just goes, halt, and holds his hand out, like royalty, of course. And of course, he gets cussed out because he's in New York. But the cab driver sees his fancy-ass luggage and sees him and obviously agrees to take him to Queens, even though he thinks that they look rich enough to be in Manhattan. Now, in Queens, of course, we get this quintessential overhead train shot panning to the neighborhood. We talked about this in the She's Gotta Have It review. Now, as they get out of the cab in front of this random barbershop by a random building, it's clear that this is like, you know, like a lady just throws trash out of her trash can straight out onto the street from her window, which is like a weird flex, but like, okay, like you don't have to dirty up your neighborhood. Like that's gross. But from outside, they can hear the argument coming from the barbershop. Inside, there's a young Cuba Gooding Jr. getting his hair cut while Morris, Clarence, Saul, and Sweets go at it about boxing braids. Morris played by Arsenio Hall, and both Saul and Clarence are played by Eddie. Now, Saul is supposed to be a Jewish man, and he has much lighter skin, but he's played by Eddie Murphy. And John Landis actually encouraged Eddie to wear light makeup as sort of like revenge for the Jewish actors that had done blackface in the early 1900s. This was also the first of many movies where Eddie Murphy played multiple characters, and he was actually inspired by watching Peter Sellers in one of his favorite movies, Dr. Strangelove. Anyway, they go find a place. They knock on the first building they see. 
talk to the landlord and ask for a room. Something that I'm not so sure that you can still do in this economy, especially with credit checks. But Akeem asks for basically the shittiest room possible. And the landlord takes them to a room that has police tape in the front. There's like still blood on the walls. Clearly a murder has happened um, because there's like chalk outlines on the floor. And there's still rats in the room, huge rats. But Akeem wants the place. He wants something that looks as poor as possible. And Simi is not happy. Oh, and when they went in, they left all their bags outside. So them shits is gone. Everybody took them. Next morning, Akeem is so excited to be in America. He stands out on a fire escape and screams, hello, neighbors. And somebody says, fuck you. He's like, yes, fuck you too. <laughs> So they go outside. The whole neighborhood is dressed in like random ass African pieces, even the homeless people. And the dude even walks up and tries to sell them some gold toothbrushes and a gold um, hair dryer from out of his jacket. Uh, and Simi accuses the man of being a thief, but he, of course, runs off. And the prince is like, well, we need to dress like New Yorkers anyway. So how do they dress like New Yorkers? They go to a souvenir shop and buy all of the I love New York things, all of the Yankees things, the giant things, everything that says New York from a gift shop. Exactly like New Yorkers would, because that's exactly how we dress. So when they leave the gift shop, we get the first showing of a Soul Glow commercial, a product for Jerry Curl activation. Now, if you're not aware what a Jerry Curl is, if you picture like black... African-American 4C hair texture, which is tightly curled hair texture, um, like a lot of Black people. And you picture the way that a Black person looks when they first emerge out of a pool of water with this glistening hair that's kind of still very curly, but sort of like hanging in its curls. Um, a jerry curl is sort of like a product that helps the hair stay loose and look that wet all of the time. Um, so now I'm going to sing y'all the Soul Glow song. Just let your soul glow. Just let it shine through. Just let your soul glow, baby. Feel it all so silky smooth. Just let it shine through, yeah. Just let your soul glow. See, I told y'all I was going to be here all week. You see what I mean by this being like a sing-along? Anyway, so now the prince wants to cut off his prince's lock, which is just a long-ass braid that he has on a regular haircut. He goes back to the bar barbershop. They still talking about boxing. Anyway, the prince says he wants to just make it neat. So he just cuts off his braid and charges him $8. So now it's time to find his queen. They go to a club and meet some women. Now, you know in the She's Gotta Have It episode, I ran down the guys' pickup lines, so you know we have to run some of these ladies' pickup lines. Um, the first one is, I've got a secret. I worship the devil. Our second one, that's the problem. I can't find a man to satisfy me. Now, some guys go an hour, hour and a half. That's it. A man got to put in overtime for me to get off. Girl, that is way too much. Well, you know, baby, I'm almost single. My husband's on death row. <laughs> um, this is a set of twins. 
This is the first date Teresa and I have been on since the doctor separated us. Oh, here's another one. Out. Hold on. Uh, I gotta light a lighter and put it under my hand for this one. Okay. I gotta put, hold my hand over it. I was Joan of Arc in my former life. <laughs> okay, here's another one. I, I wish I had somebody here to beatbox with me because I can't do both parts by myself. But I'm gonna try to like. Hold on. I'm, my name is Peaches, and I'm the best. All the DJs want to feel my breath. <laughs> and then there's what? Okay, and the last one is literally our city hall dressed up as a woman in a red dress with makeup on. Comes over and goes, I hope you don't mind me coming and sitting next to you, but I've been watching you all evening, and I want to tear you apart. And your friend, too. <laughs> so now they think every woman in Queens has emotional issues. But they run into Clarence in the barbershop. And he tells them, they don't need to be in clubs looking for women. They need to go to a quiet place, like church. Or the Black Awareness Rally that he's on his way to. The rally, the first place we see the rally is them picking Miss Black Awareness out of a bunch of beautiful women in swimsuits. Very black and aware. Reverend Brown, also played by Arsenio Hall, says that when he looks at these women, he knows there's a God. Hugh Hefner can photograph it, but only God can make it. The Hugh Hefner on high. You know, they didn't even pick a winner for the Miss Black Awareness. They was just all standing on stage and he was like, y'all can just get off stage. But now Reverend Brown has a treat for us. Joe, the policeman from the What's Going Down episode of That's My Mama, <laughs> Randy Watson. That sentence is so funny to me. Joe, the policeman from the What's Going Down episode of That's My Mama. <laughs> None of which are real. And Randy, of course, is played by Eddie Murphy. So Randy and his band, Sexual Chocolate, began their musical number. So you should picture singing... Similar to Donkey from Shrek. Actually, that's exactly what it's like because it's the same person and the same kind of singing. So, here we go. I believe the children of our future. Thank you. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. Give them a sense. Proud. Make it easier. Anyway, while he's singing, Mr. McDowell, Cleo McDowell, and one of his daughters is in the back giving out food. And this is when we see Mr. McDowell and the McDowell family for the first time. Anyway, back to the song. I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadow. If I fail, if I succeed, you can't take away my dignity. Because the greatest love of all inside of me. Yeah. Sexy chocolate. Sexy chocolate. Drops the mic. Exit stage left. Minimal applause. We tried our best. Sexual chocolate. Now Reverend Cut Brown comes back to thank Mr. McDowell for all the refreshments, accompanied by words from his other daughter, Lisa McDowell. 
Sherry Headley is considered one of the original black beauties, really just because of this film. She goes on to give a passionate speech about how the children really are our future. And of course, our boy Akeem is in love. They pass around an offering tray for donations to rebuild Lincoln Park. And this man literally put all of the money that they were carrying into this basket. He is no issue. They read off the address to McDowell's and Akeem makes the decision that they're going to go next day and just get jobs there. Now, in case you're wondering, McDonald's does not like the fact that McDowell's exists, especially because of their golden arcs instead of golden arches. But McDowell, Mr. McDowell swears that it's different. He's even got the big Mick, which is two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, but on a non-sesame seed bun. See, that's different. So Akeem giving the job to Mop. So he mops past Lisa's office like three times before he finally goes in to say hello and introduce himself very awkwardly. Meanwhile, her boyfriend, Daryl, played by Eric LaSalle, pulls up with his Soul Glow Perman. His dad owns Soul Glow, so Mr. McDowell is overly approving of this man. Uh, Daryl goes in to see Lisa and she asks him assumingly if he knows who put the very large offering of cash into the collection plate at the rally. And you know he doesn't deny it. Man literally didn't put anything into the plate at the rally. And as he's leaving, he throws a milkshake at the trash can where Akeem is standing and ends up getting milkshake all over him. So this is their first interaction. So Akeem goes back to the barber and asks if they can give him a jerry curl because he wants to impress a girl. And they're like, yo, if it's an American girl, it don't matter how you look. You're going to have to win her over through her dad. So now, back at work, Akeem comes mopping by Mr. McDowell's office trying to get in good with him. He tries talking about football, but he doesn't really understand football. So Mr. McDowell just kind of says, stay off drugs, son. Um, now, at home, Lisa's reading a magazine and giggling with her sister, Patrice, while Patrice dances around the house. An admirer, a delivery comes to the house that's accompanied by a police escort. It's a pair of ruby and diamond earrings for Lisa with a note from an admirer, not Daryl. So thank goodness he clarified that it wasn't from Daryl. But Patrice thinks that there's no way that you can get a gift like that if you're not, like, giving up some ass. But Lisa honestly believes that all men don't think like that. The next day at McDowell's, Lisa introduces Akeem to her sister. Um, now, all this time, he's just saying he's a student. But when they ask which school he's at, he says, the University of the United States. You got to do better than that, babe. But they just say they haven't heard of it. But Patrice gets the idea to invite Akeem to the St. John's game. He's excited to go until he finds out it's going to be a double date with Lisa and Daryl. Boo. So <laughs> watching the game part, I was actually reminded of one of my favorite lines from this movie. And I used to say it all the time when he gets up and goes, yes, indie fits, indie fits. But... We have a problem. Patrice is trying to fill this man up under his coat. He's trying to be chill, but I mean, like, if somebody is rubbing your thing in a public place, it's hard. No pun intended. Okay, yes, pun intended. 
At the same time, Daryl is insulting this man every chance he gets, saying it must be new for him to have on clothes, making fun of soccer, like basically making fun of this man for being African every moment he gets. And eventually, it just gets to be too much, all this stuff. So Akeem has to go to the bathroom. In line, a man selling drinks passes by, and he immediately begins to shout praises at Akeem. He is a loyal citizen of Zamunda, and this is the best day of his life. Akeem quickly leaves the restroom area, and when Daryl and Lisa end up finding him, the same man runs up and asks the prince for a photo, graciously kissing his hand, as well as the guy who takes the photo. And when Lisa says, who was that? He just says, someone I met in the bathroom. Next day, Akeem is mopping, like always, when he hears Daryl asking Lisa to quit her job to let him take care of her. But she is not into that. And when he steps away to eventually get her a coffee, Akeem mops his way over and Lisa invites him to sit down. And she says she's never seen someone take so much pride in mopping. And he hits her with a Nietzsche quote. Not what Lisa ex would expect from someone mopping floors for her dad. And just then... Sam Jackson walks in to rob the place with a big-ass shotgun. He don't have a name. He's just a robber, so it's Sam Jackson. Um, Akeem walks over after he... Um, everybody's, he's, everybody's scared. He's asking for money. And Akeem makes eye contact with Simi while unscrewing the mop handle from the bottom of the mop. He comes over, tries to calmly talk him down, but he has to end up using that mop can handle to knock the gun over to Simi, who points it and calls him a disease rhinoceros pizzle. And of course, Lisa is very impressed. Now, Mr. McDowell is very happy that the guy has handled the robber and wants to in invite him to his house for a get-together on Sunday. Yay! To work in the kitchen and park cars. Boo. But Mr. McDowell brings Akeem inside to show him around telling him that he's worked very hard for everything that he has. And maybe in 20 or 30 years, Akeem could have a nice house like this too. And of course, as always, Akeem is very humble and says, hopefully I will, I'll have something like this as well. So while Akeem is working the bar, Daryl comes over and tells Akeem that he's impressed with how he handled the robber and he would have helped if he wasn't holding a coffee, of course. So all of a sudden, he goes into this rant about how being aggressive is important, especially with women, because all women just want to be told what to do, right? Of course. So Daryl goes to Mr. McDowell and asks to speak with him. Shortly afterwards, he announces that Daryl asked Lisa to marry him, and she says yes. She looks confused as fuck because he did not ask her. And for some reason, nobody notices how pissed she looks. They all clapping and doing the cheers. She ends up pulling Daryl away to give him an earful, but he doesn't care because he just thinks they're engaged now because he told her what was what. Dummy. Now, Akeem sees her sitting on a swing outside and offers Lisa champagne, but she doesn't want it. She just is uh, upset. She's not going to be pressured into marrying anybody, not even by her dad. Now, of course, Akeem understands this completely. Lisa seems to find Akeem really easy to talk to and doesn't know how she ever considered marrying Daryl. But Patrice hollers outside because they need more champagne. So Akeem has to get back to his actual work, but not before Lisa tells him to be careful because she thinks Patrice likes him. 
In the morning, Akeem tries to wake Simi up for work, but Simi is irritable and he's like, I am not going. I am tired of living in squalor. I am not going to work. Akeem says, you know what? You can fix this place up if you want to, but you got to get up and come to work, especially now that things are going well with him and Mr. McDowell and Lisa. So now after work, Lisa and Akeem walk out together and she's saying that she doesn't know how she stayed with Daryl for so long. So now we know it's pretty much over. She tells Akeem that he's been such a good listener and she wants to cook him dinner with the knowledge that patrice is gonna be at her house he don't want to go there so he asks if he can cook for her at his place even though it is very poor but of course she does not mind and she even offers to buy the groceries for dinner they get to his quote-unquote humble abode remember how he said you could fix up the place well Simi done bought all this nice furniture a jacuzzi tub a tv silk sheets nice bed Definitely not the squalor that Akeem is trying to put out there. So Akeem takes the rest of Semi's money so he can't cause any more issues. He goes off to tell Lisa that there is a big rat in the place so they can't come in. She assumes that he's just so ashamed of his place that he won't let her in. So he just goes with what she said. And they decide to go out to dinner instead. And as they walk by the bridge, he gifts a group of homeless men with all of the money that he took from Semi. Uh, that group of homeless men were the Dean brothers from Trading Places who um, basically went homeless in that film. So they say, we're back. And it's a, a tribute to Trading Places as well, which was John Landis and Eddie Murphy's last film. So cute. At dinner, Lisa tells Akeem that he seems to have the most amazing effect on people because the homeless guys come and knock on the window and start thanking him as well. Obviously, he gave them a bunch of money, but she has no idea. Um, back home, women must, she thinks back home women must throw themselves at his feet because he has this inner glow. It's almost regal, she says. When the check comes, he reaches for it. She offers to pay, saying that if she wanted a rich man, she'd be with Daryl and not him. And Akeem asks her to dance. To be loved is playing while they dance cheek to cheek, literally cheek to cheek. And she pulls away to ask, what about Patrice? I am not interested in Patrice. I can't do the accent. Ugh. And what about Daryl? I am not interested in Daryl either. And then... The moment we've been all waiting for the whole time. They kiss. <sighs> I'm so magical. <laughs> Meanwhile, Simi is a Western Union sending a wire transfer request for $300,000 to King Jockey Joker. And the lady at the counter thinks it's a joke. And she's like, oh, why don't you ask for 500 k And he was like, y'all think that's too much? She's like, nah. Matter of fact, you should just ask for a cool meal. He's like, really? She's like, mm. Why not? So uh, when Simi comes home after that, he finds Patrice inside. She came looking for Akeem, but found this nice-ass apartment. So now she's wondering where they got the money for all this nice-ass stuff. After uh, the date, now Akeem is coming home and he is loudly singing, Do be love! Do be love! While the whole block is screaming at him to shut the fuck up. When he comes in his house to find Patrice and Semi making out on the waterbed. You see, Semi has told her everything. Everything being that Semi is a prince and Akeem is his servant. So Lisa's been getting flowers nonstop from Daryl. And her dad still wants her to be with him. But only really because he doesn't want to see his baby struggle, you know. 
the way that him and his wife did. Nonetheless, she heads out for her date with the king. Meanwhile, Akeem called the landlord and said he needs another place that looks poor again. And the landlord, kind as he is, graciously agrees to trade apartments with them. He'll stay in this lavishly, nicely decorated apartment with the jacuzzi and all the nice uh, uh, accoutrements while they can go down and stay in his shitty apartment. Just as Akeem is leaving for his date, the whole crew shows up. King, queen, Oha, servants, rose bearers, everybody. First, they stop at the barber. Barber tells them Akeem is on the fifth floor. They go up there. Landlord says they in the apartment on the first floor. But now, before he leaves there, he finds out his son has a job and is working. He is upset. So he gets down to the first floor. Sammy opens that door. Immediately slams it shut. But you can't slam the door on the king. So he tries to open it again. Tries to sweet talk King Jaffe. Not having it. He says that Simi has must be punished for not watching over a king by being confined to their suite at the Waldorf Astoria and being bathed very thoroughly by the royal bathers. That sounds so horrible, right? Yes. And meanwhile, Lisa and Akeem are at the museum having a lovely little stroll around. They get to the Zamunda part of the exhibit. He has to quickly kiss her and whisk her away before she sees a family portrait of him and his parents, the royal family of Zamunda. Speaking of royal family, they roll up to McDowell's. Now, Mr. McDowell had just gotten off the phone with Daryl, trying to get him back with Lisa, tells him to come by the house that evening. But he gets called out to speak with the king, finds out Akeem is a prince, so you know Buddy's height. Mr. McDowell's like, you know what, I'll let you know he's here. But the king says, do not alert him of my presence. I shall deal with him myself. Does that sound familiar to you? Now it should, because the same voice said, leave them to me. I will deal with them myself as Darth Vader in Return of the Jedi. That's super fun. There's like a lot of old movie references in this reference from people who were in those movies. Anyway, Akeem gets back to his place with Lisa, sees all the flowers on the ground. He knows what's up. He's panicked. Tells Lisa they should go back to her house. He's trying to quickly drop her off, but Mr. McDowell wants to keep him there, so of course he can call King Jaffe at his request. Doorbell rings. It's Daryl. But now Mr. McDowell could literally give two shits about this man or his Jerry girl. Slams the door on him twice. So Akeem is like, I gotta go. He dips. Lisa's like, why are you being so nice to Akeem all of a sudden? After beating around the bush for a little bit, he finally admits everything. Akeem is rich, royalty. His picture is even on money. Lisa's not happy. She just kind of feels duped and confused. So Akeem goes back to the Waldorf to find his parents, but of course they've gone to find him. So now he has to go back. Family shows up at the McDowell's house. Mr. McDowell's hype, presumably because he thinks that they're going to be so happy to find out that their son likes his daughter. They try to be polite, but eventually the king asks to speak with Lisa alone. He tells her that Akeem could never have been serious about her, as he already has a bride and only came to America to, quote, sow his royal oats. Remember, those were the king's words, not Akeem's. Now, of course, that's not what she wants to hear, so she leaves, really upset. 
Once the king tells Mr. McDowell that he and his daughter are beneath him, even after the queen protests and tells him to apologize, he tries to offer Mr. McDowell $1 million, then $2 million for his inconvenience. But Mr. McDowell is not going to accept any money for his daughter to be bought off. Patrice comes in mad confused because she thought Sammy was the prince. So now she feel dumb for picking the wrong one. The king tells Akeem that they are going back home ASAP. But when the queen asks if he cares for Lisa, Akeem says he loves her. So she, being a full queen, literally and figuratively, tells him to go after her. The king tries to forbid it, but Queen Aeolian pulls rank and tells him to shut up, which as she should. Patrice is in her room pouting. I understand. Daryl shows up, dripping wet from the rain, sad about being dumped. He also got attacked by a dog. So you know Patrice is jumping on that, and Daryl is not too proud. They obviously deserve each other. Akeem finds Lisa about to go down in the subway where we get one of the most unrealistic shots of the film. But first, fuck that. See? See you next Wednesday is this recurring thing that happens in a lot of John Landis's John Landis's films. And uh, they usually refer to like a fake movie that is never seen in its entirety. There's usually posters or like clips from the movie, but it's not, it doesn't really exist. And, uh, Every See You Next Wednesday is a different movie, but it's always called See You Next Wednesday. Um, he got the See You Next Wednesday from 2001 A Space Odyssey because it's the last line spoken by the main character's dad during his like video uh, letter from his parents in space. Now, in Coming to America, there's a poster of the See You Next Wednesday that's in the subway when Lisa's trying to run from Prince King. This, this See You Next Wednesday stars Dan Aykroyd, Sybil Danning, Jamie Lee Curtis, James Brown, Mo Howard, and Carrie Young. Like a motley crew, but it would be a wild film and I would definitely have watched it. Anyway, unrealistically, they both get on the train and they walk from car to car without bumping into a single person. There's no crowds. It's quiet enough for them to talk and for other people to hear their conversation. Never in the history of New York have all those things been true on a train at the same time. So she tells him she doesn't see it for him because he's obviously playing games. But he tells her he, that he literally came looking in America for his queen, came looking for her. He says, you know what? If you, don't, if you didn't love me as a goat herder, I will leave you alone right now. She doesn't deny that she loved him, but she said they're too different and it wouldn't work because he's royalty. He offers to renounce his throne for her. He only wants her, but as at the next stop, she says she can't make him do that. She gets off. She says goodbye. He's heartbroken, but he doesn't try to chase her. They journey home now with the knowledge of how to make friends fries, I guess. Meanwhile, in the car, Queen Aeolian says that she only wanted to see her son happy. But the way that the king treated Lisa, it's no wonder that she said no to his proposal. And when the king suggests that it would have been outside of tradition for them to marry and asks, who am I to break tradition? Aeolian says, I thought you were the king. Get him, sis. Back at the palace, it's wedding day. Prince Akeem is standing at the altar waiting for his bride solemnly. She approaches in this beautiful sparkly pink 
gown that's covered in glitter. Her veil is pink, also covered in glitter. And of course, when he pulls the veil off, he reveals that it's Lisa, yay! Even though we could clearly see her light-skinned arms did not match Imani Izzy's arms, his previous bride, um, because she's very dark complected. Her skin is a lot darker. But you know what? We're Yay, we're surprised! Yay! And King Jaffe even gives a little smile like Mufasa did from the clouds of the end of Lion King. Um, and Prince Akeem immediately kisses her, but the wedding ain't even started, so sir, you're supposed to wait on that, but stop. Anyway, so they ride off after after the wedding on a carriage, and that's the end. We roll credits. Each of the main actors gets their own character screen, um, and then the traditional rolling credits. So, what did we learn? That some men really want women who think for themselves? Well, duh. This was the late 80s, the height of shoulder pads, power suits, women working for what we want, doing it for ourselves. We work hard for the money. We work hard for it, honey. Working nine to five. What a way to make a living. Lisa seems self-sufficient, but she still works with her dad and lives with her dad. Basically in a similar fashion to women of other cultures that we know usually stay with their families until they're ready to marry. That's kind of what I want to talk about today. All of our main characters, Daryl, Lisa, and Akeem, all come from family businesses that have garnered a form of generational wealth. In the Black community, we're all very aware that our ancestors were seen as household appliances pretty much until about 250 years ago, and even then, it was an uphill battle with no shoes on a muddy hill. Having a last name that was associated with money behind it as a Black person only meant that you were owned by a rich house at one time. Did nothing to help you, and did nothing to help your resources. I've talked before about how Black people were often depicted in old films like pimps, prostitutes, drug dealers, quick money hustlers, because we're always trying to find a fast way to survive, a fast way to make a quick buck. Now, look at our film. Of course, we know that Akeem comes from royalty, which is the ultimate in generational wealth. There are actually some groups of Africans that believe that Black Americans have no culture because we don't know our roots and we don't know where we began. And they believe that our ancestors were weak to be captured. I dated a man from a country in Africa for a while, and his parents definitely looked down on me from jump and every chance that they got. Even after many years, they still did. Imagine if both Akeem's parents were like King Jaffe. That's what I was like going to his home. Horrible. Anyway, back to my point. Akeem has wealth from his family. Daryl's family owns Soul Glow, which is presumably huge because Jerry Girls were all the rage in the late 80s and early 90s. And Lisa's father owns a fast food place. It's a small enterprise, but it's still something with their name on it that belongs in the family that will build wealth generationally. Now, we see that Lisa's dad really wants her to marry into money. But that's because he built their family wealth. So he knows what it's like to struggle. Lisa doesn't know that feeling. So her biggest struggle is trying to trying to be acknowledged as more than just a trophy. Daryl's struggle is trying to convince Lisa that she only needs his money and doesn't need her own. And Akeem's struggle is hiding how much money he has. 
I think that's what makes this movie a little bit more interesting and why we kind of subconsciously love the movie the way we do. Money is only a problem because it is in too much excess. Akeem has too much. After shows and movies that were out in the 70s and 80s with Black people who were hungry, poor, starving, struggling to make ends meet, depending and depending on the love of family to get them through. Now here we find another idea in this film. You can have a family that loves you. You can be cared about, but they can also set you up for success with some form of wealth. It doesn't all have to be emotional value. You can provide generational wealthy value as well. And knowing that, it's probably best to connect with someone who also has some kind of generational wealth so they don't simply value your money. The message of loving someone for who they are is great. And we love that across movies, TV shows, songs, all of it's beautiful. But everyone in the film is good looking and has some form of money. So that idea of loving someone for who they are instead of what they are doesn't stick out as much to me as the idea of general wealth, generational wealth, somehow managing to find each other, even across continents. Is there another theme that sticks out to you guys other than the generational wealth thing and also just the general like love someone for who you see them as? That's very basic. If you see any other themes that you think we should discuss or that you think are cool, please let me know. Email me. Send me a message. From what I saw, this film isn't really streaming for free anywhere, but so I had to rent it. But like, it comes on a lot on movie channels if you have a lot of movie channels, or you can always rent it. You know, it's a com comedic classic. If you like the '80s, if you like Eddie, you'll probably like it. So I'd recommend it. Next week. I think we're heading out to find the Holy Grail. That seems festive for our upcoming holiday. Please follow the podcast on whatever platforms you use. I definitely recommend Good Pods if you like to keep your podcast in a specific neat and dainty place. However, um, whatever platform you use, rate, comment, subscribe. Check out the Halaif Pod Instagram. That's H-L-A-Y-F. P-O-D on Instagram. I usually post movie stills, fun facts over there. Our website is also up. Here's lookingpodcast.com. Follow me on Twitter at film underscore Nikki, where I literally am all the time. If you ever want to see where I am, just find me on that page on Twitter. You will find me. And send any collab requests, advice, movie recommendations, general greetings, um, pretty pictures, ugly pictures, pony pictures, uh, motivational quotes, send any of that to here's looking podcast at gmail.com. That's H-E-R-E-S-L-O-O-K-I-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. I do want you guys to know that right now it is 4.55 a.m. This has been a long but very pleasant endeavor. I'm happy to be here with you and I really do love all y'all. I can't tell you how much I love all y'all. Um, this episode is very long, but next week I'll go into um, some of my stats and more of the reasons that I love you guys. But thanks for tuning in. And if I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Cheers. <laughs>